the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. Clark Hilton, engineering today's program. James Blind, he's producing. Today we're going to talk uh, with Ron Rhodes. I should say Dr. Ron Rhodes. His latest book is Israel on High Alert. What can we expect next in the Middle East? A lot of us are watching closely with the newspaper in one hand, the Bible in the other, and he's going to clarify whether or not Scripture gives us any insight into the meaning of some of the events that are happening. Ron Rhodes will join us later at the top of the five o'clock hour. Looking forward to that. Well, Congress returns with a gun control on its docket. They've been away for a few days. They appear to be settling on the outlines of consensus for action on stricter gun controls with moves to strengthen the background check system, restrict sales of bump stocks, the most likely areas of bipartisan uh, action. Those are some areas they have some broad agreement on. Moves to raise the age limit on sales of rifles will test the limits of that deal, though. And even Democratic leaders sounded doubtful about their ability to ban sales of military-style semi-automatic rifles. Well, the president's uh, suggestion to train and arm school faculty volunteers um, uh, willing to ad- and adept enough to carry firearms is also meeting with stiff resistance. The president now says he would leave the decision up to the states. Congress returns uh, after a week-long vacation today to find the uh, debate has only intensified since they left, just a day after the Parkland, Florida high school shooting that has ignited the, largest, uh, the latest rather national battle over gun control. Uh, I think many people are watching to see if this, like previous incidents, will fizzle out with very little action. Led by Mr. Uh, Trump, or Republican leaders are looking to, to uh, uh, speed through legislation that will require federal agencies to report more criminal and other disqualifying records to the National Instant Criminal Background Check System. It screens all gun purchases from licensed dealers, and that could have uh, prevented the gunman in the November 5th Texas church shooting who faced discipline in the Air Force for domestic violence from obtaining weapons. Now, it's interesting, every one of the solutions that they're looking at would have uh, dealt with one um, incident that took place or another, but not all. Key Republicans also say that they're willing to consider legislation to outlaw bump stocks, which are aftermarket add-ons that make semi-automatic rifles simulate the rate of fire of of automatic weapons, one used in the October 1st Las Vegas uh, massacre, again, used in that event, but not the more recent. Mr. Trump announced that um, he wanted bump stock sales to be reg- uh, regulated, uh, may have uh, cleared the path uh, for Congress or in Congress with what the president proposed on bump stocks. It seems to me that it's easier to deal with. That's a quote from Senator John Cornyn, a Texas Republican, speaking to The Washington Times. It may be as simple as just providing explicit authority to the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms to regulate bump stocks. He uh, is the chief sponsor of the Fix NICS bill to add federal agency records and press states 
to ensure their records are part of the national background system. That bipartisan bill is likely a starting point. How much further the bill goes, though, depends on the president and other Republicans. Senator Patrick Toomey, a Pennsylvania Republican, said he intends to try again to expand background checks beyond licensed dealers to include sales between private parties online and at gun shows. His proposal, co-sponsored with Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, he's a Democrat, failed to clear a Senate filibuster after the 2012 Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting. But there's been a new surge of support for uh, for it this month. Let's at least require a background check for all commercial sales. I intend to give this another shot, Mr. Toomey said, speaking on Meet the Press over the weekend. Uh, Mr. Um, Trump and several other prominent Republicans have also backed raising the age for sales of rifles to 21, which would put them in line with the federal standards for sales of handguns. Some states already have a 21-year-old uh, limit for rifles. That would have addressed this incident, but not some of the others. Senator Marco Rubio, a Florida Republican, added his voice last week to those calling for a higher age. But uh, Mr. Cornyan said, um, Cornyan rather, said that he opposed that idea. If you can be enlisted in the military at 18, I'm not sure I understand the 21 age. I think there are better ways to address it than adjust an arbitrary age increase, he said. Well, many of the students who survived the majority, or rather the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School shooting, have called for a broad ban on sales of semi-automatic rifles, such as AR-15 style weapons that police say the killer used in that attack. Senator Dianne Feinstein, California Democrat, has said that she would push for a renewed debate on that kind of a ban, which was in place for a a decade after the Clinton-era federal assault weapons ban. That law expired in 2004. But Senate Majority Leader Charles Schumer, Chuck Schumer, New York Democrat, seemed to downplay that potential in a conference call with reporters last week. He said Democrats' top priority going into the debate would be to impose universal background checks. He said that was an uh, at the nexus of the change, rather the chance of actually becoming law and at the same time doing a whole lot of good in preventing people, felons, those who are adjudicated mentally ill from getting guns. Meanwhile, Mr. Trump's call to have armed faculty available to deter or stop shootings has struggled to gain traction. Florida Governor Rick Scott, a Republican, became the latest to reject that idea on Sunday. I disagree with him, he said. I believe you have to focus on the people who are well-trained, law enforcement, who are trained to do this, he said. I want our teachers to teach and I want our law enforcement to be able to protect the students. I want each group to focus on what they're good at. But Representative Brian Mast, he's a Florida Republican and former Army bomb disposal technician, said he could support armed teachers in some instances. Mr. Mass said that though um, he has uh, concluded there should be limits on the types of rifles available. He said Americans don't need access to the kinds of weapons he carried during his time in the Army. I fired tens of thousands of rounds through that rifle, many in combat. We used it because it was the most lethal, the best for killing our enemies, he said in an op-ed in the New York Times on Friday. I can't support the primary weapon I used to defend our people being used to kill children I swore to defend. He said Mr. Trump should be should use executive powers to declare a temporary ban on the sale of AR-15 style weapons, similar to the president's travel ban policy, giving Congress space to pursue a more permanent solution. Representative Thomas Massey, a Kentucky uh, Republican, said that he would like to uh, end gun free zones because that's where 98 percent of mass shootings take place. We need to take those labels off and put our kids in that two percent category of being safe instead of being in the 98 percent vulnerable category, he said. He also 
also said he wasn't a fan of raising the buying age. Uh, if I came home after proposing some of these things that are so uh, unserious and disingenuous that some of my colleagues are proposing, I couldn't face my wife or my children, he said. We'll see what happens when these lawmakers face the nation uh, in trying to fashion some response to the latest tragedy, the latest uh, travesty at a, a school in which 17 were killed, the majority of uh, whom were students at that school. Meanwhile, the president told the nation's governors on Sunday night that the mass shooting at the Florida high school earlier this month will be discussed during upcoming White House meetings. We'll be talking about the Parkland and the horrible event that took place last week, he said, during his brief remarks to the governors and their spouses at their annual ball. That will be one of the subjects, and I think we'll make that uh, first on our list on Monday, meaning this morning. The president also singled out Florida's Republican Governor Rick Scott for praise during his remarks, saying Scott was doing a great job. The February 14th shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School killed 17 students and teachers, sparked the national debate that's still going on about American gun laws back uh, to life. The president described the shooting as a horrible event. His uh, sessions with the governors um, will be the latest in which he solicits ideas for stopping gun violence at schools as the White House works to finalize an expected legislative proposal. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Well, the first time since 17 people were killed on their school campus on Valentine's Day, students, parents, and teachers made an emotional return Sunday for a voluntary orientation at... Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. The thousands of students who returned to the campus covered in signs, balloons, flowers, memorials honoring their classmates, teachers, and friends who were shot in one of the deadliest massacres in modern history. Members of the uh, community who were scheduled to meet with administrators to discuss the school's reopening uh, planned for uh, Wednesday appeared to have mixed emotions upon their return. Uh, One uh, said that while... um, uh, set on making the change, um, they were scared to go back. I don't know if I could feel safe again in a school like that, uh, the, the community member said, especially knowing that there were so many interests, entrances rather to that school and not knowing how Nicholas Cruz, the shooter, got in. Uh, that's one scary thing. Well, I suppose they do know now how he got in, and uh, one would hope that some measures would be taken to prevent some uh, similar wandering into the building uh, taking place in the days ahead. Uh, the student said that uh, she didn't expect anyone to return to campus right away, just because I know a lot of people were in the freshman building. So going back and not being able to go to those classes, seeing their classmates is going to uh, to hit them. So apparently they're not going to be reentering that particular location. Uh, during the return uh, to the school on Sunday, one 15-year-old brought his father to the band room closet where he hid in the school uh, as the shooting took place. I walked in and showed him. Uh, That's where I was, he said, speaking to the Miami Herald. His father, David, told the newspaper, his voice breaking, it was tough. Uh, to be there. In addition to showing his father the fateful spot where he hid, uh, as more than 30 others uh, were shot, um, apparently wounded, if 
not fatally. Liam said that he saw the teacher who saved his life and gave him a big hub. That was definitely a moment. I'm anxious to get back. I'm happy to be back. I think we need to be. It'll be nice for us to be together, he went on to say. Another 16-year-old student told the Herald that while it was still nerve-wracking to be back on the campus on Sunday, she's ready to make it back to school. Another student uh, who's become a prominent figure at the students in the never-again gun control movement following the shooting echoed that sentiment, tweeting on Sunday that it's good to be home. I'm anxious to get back. I'm happy to be back, said another. A freshman expressed a similar attitude, telling the Associated Press last week that she's not scared to return to the school. I'm going to come back strong with my friends and show that we love each other so much and we are going to get get through this, she said. She was in the building where the shooting took place. And let's hope that uh, all of the students in returning on Wednesday, which is their first official day back in which classes will be held, that it will be a time of, uh, of healing rather than further wounding. Peggy Noonan, writing on the events that took place in Parkland, that massacre, uh, writes this. We discuss motives, but isn't it always the same motive? I have murder in my heart. Why do so many Americans have murder in their hearts, she asks. That's my question after the St. Valentine's Day shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. We all know it's part of a continuing cultural catastrophe. A terrible aspect of the catastrophe is that so many central thoughts about it and questions have been flattened by time into cliches. People stop hearing when you mention them. We talked about that during Columbine, didn't we? That couldn't be it. So we immediately revert to discussions of gun law or only gun law. There is much to be improved in that area. I offer a suggestion at the end. But it uh, it is not uh, the only part of the story. The story is also who we are now and what what shape we're in. A way to look at the question is, what has happened the past 40 years or so to produce a society so ill at ease with itself, so prone to violence? We know. We all say it privately. But it's so obvious, it's hardly worth saying. We've been swept by social, technological, and cultural revolution. The family blew up. Divorce, unwed, childbearing, fatherless sons, fatherless daughters, too. Poor children with no one to love them. The Internet flourished. Porn proliferated. Drugs, legal and illegal. Violent video games in which nameless people are eliminated and splattered all over the screen. The Columbine shooters loved and might have been addicted to doom. The abortion regime settled in with its fierce, endless, yet somehow casual talk about the right to end a life. And increasingly violent. Violent entertainment culture, low, hypersexualized, full of anime and weirdness, allergic to meaning and depth. The old longing for integration gave way to a culture of accusation. You are a supremacist, a misogynist. You are guilty of privilege and defined by your color and class. We don't let your uh, sort speak here. At this moment, we are in the middle of a reckoning about how disturbed our sexual landscape has become. This past week, we turned to violence within marriage. We recently looked at the international sex trade, a phrase that sounds so 18th century but refers to a real and profitable business today. All this change, compressed into 40 years, has produced some good things, even miraculous ones, but it does not feel accidental that America is experiencing what appears to be a mental health crisis, especially among the young. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recently reported as many as 20% of children, 3 and 17, have in any given year a mental or emotional illness. 
There is research indicating depression among teenagers is worsening. National Public Radio recently quoted a 2005 report asserting, asserting rather, the percentage of prison inmates with serious mental illness rose from less than 1% in 1880 to 21% in 2005. Deinstitutionalization swept health care and the psychiatric profession starting in the 1960s and has continued since. The sick now go to the emergency room or stay among us untreated. In the society we have created the past 40 years, you know, we are not making fewer emotional ill people, young people, but more. And here to me is the problem. A nation has an atmosphere. It has air it breathes in each day. China has a famous pollution problem. You can see the dirt in the air. America's air looks clean, but there are toxins in it, and they're making the, the uh, least defended and protected of us sick. Here is one breath of air, breath of the air. Two weeks ago, the U.S. Senate blocked a bill that would have banned most abortions after 20 weeks. Exceptions were made, the life of the mother, incest, rape, 20 weeks, right up to the start of the sixth month. Seemed reasonable, but Democrats said it was an assault on women's rights. So as far as the Senate is concerned, you can end the life of a six to nine-month-old baby that can live outside the womb that is not only uh, human, but recognizably and obviously human. And even if you are 100% for full-term abortion, even, even if you think this right must be protected, lest we go on a slippery slope and the next thing you know they'll outlaw contraceptives, your own language might have averted you along the way to your radicalism. Imagine you are pregnant in the last trimester and suddenly feel movement in your belly and shift from here to there. You say, oh, my goodness, feel. And you take the hand of the father or of another um, uh, intimate and you place your place it on your stomach. You don't say the fetus lurched or a conglomeration of cells is making itself manifest. You say the baby moved. The baby is moving. You say this because it's a baby and you know it. You say it because in... um, in your wonder at it and at life, you tell the truth. I should add who used that, that example with me, a great liberal journalist who sees right through his party's dishonesty on this issue. The failure to ban late-term abortion is one of those central things we rarely talk about. And I'll tell you what I think a teenager absorbs about it unconsciously in America. He sees a headline online. He passes a television in an airport. He hears the quick story and he thinks, if the baby you don't let live is unimportant, then I guess I am unimportant. And you're unimportant, too. They don't even know they're breathing that in. And it's there in the atmosphere and they're breathing it in and it doesn't make you healthier. The National Rifle Association, too, fears their slippery slope and their fear means nothing commonsensical can be done regarding gun law. Concede anything and it will mean they're coming for your hunting rifles. Congress has been talking at least recently and to some extent of a trade on immigration, new protections for dreamers on one hand versus increased border security on the other. This would be a good deal. Dreamers are integrated into American life and a good many work in education and health care. And America is a great sovereign nation with not only a a uh, right, but a responsibility to control its borders. Compromise is often good. On gun law, Republicans oppose banning assault weapons such as AR-15, the one the Parkland shooter used, because of the numbers, power, and contributions of gun owners and the NRA. Democrats oppose banning late-term abortion because of the numbers, power, and contributions of the rising left, feminists, and Planned Parenthood. The idea trade banning assault weapons for banning late-term abortion make illegal a killing machine, and a killing procedure. In both cases, the lives of children would be saved. Wouldn't this clean some of the air? Wouldn't we all breathe a little easier? 
Well, she, of course, recognizes that that's not going to happen. But she writes Peggy Noonan uh, for the Patriot Post. What's gone wrong with our culture that produces such atrocities? It's a very long list. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 36 minutes after four o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, today the Supreme Court announced that it would not intervene to the uh, to stay the lower court ruling temporarily blocking the implementation of the president's termination of the previous administration's executive amnesty uh, renewals uh, of approximately 700,000 deportation waivers for immigrants in the country brought to the U.S. as children would have ended on March the 5th. That's next week, by the way. Now, under the continued deferred action for child childhood arrivals program, those waivers will remain available. The Supreme Court did request that the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals act expeditiously to decide the case. Well, that's not an unusual ruling. It would be unusual for the Supreme Court to step in to prevent a ruling from the courts of appeals. Um, So this was not altogether surprising. Immigration activists are cheering, although cheering with a temporary um, uh, sigh, not knowing what the future will hold. The decision is a temporary stay of execution, if you will. And it is. The Supreme Court's rejection is actually a win for the Trump administration politically, too. That's because the Trump administration will not have to start deporting dreamers. So no nasty headlines about Trump cruelty. Those will be attached to other initiatives. And meanwhile, the Trump administration will be able to claim to its supporters that it did everything in its power to stop DACA, but was thwarted by the courts and the left. In essence, Trump will be able to leave DACA in place while claiming he attempted everything to stop uh, the program, which, of course, he did. That, of course... um uh, is uh, is the case for the moment. The administration didn't bother asking the Supreme Court for a temporary stay of the lower court ruling, which was an option. Um, evidence that the administration doesn't actually want to start deportations and a confirmation of the contradictory statements that have been made about what his uh, intent uh, would be long term. So what's changed? The answer is not much. The media will uh, be able to claim that Trump lost in court. Trump will be able to avoid beginning deportations and blame the courts for it. And while the media uh, champion the ruling as a loss for Trump on the political level, Trump doesn't lose anything at all. In other words, nothing has been accomplished, and we'll just have to wait and see what the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ultimately does. Meanwhile, President Trump on Saturday dismissed a Democratic rebuttal to the GOP memo outlining government surveillance abuses in the 2016 campaign as a total political and legal bust, claiming that it only confirms the terrible things that were done by the nation's intelligence agencies. Well, the rebuttal was written by Democrats on the House Intelligence Committee. It concluded that officials at the FBI and Justice Department did not abuse the Foreign Intelligence um, Surveillance Act or FISA process, omit material information, or subvert this vital tool to spy on the Trump campaign. Now, Democrats sought to uh, counter claims made in a Republican memo released this month that the FBI and the Department of Justice relied on a Democrat-funded anti-Trump dossier to ask the FISA court for a warrant to monitor Trump advisor Carter Page. Democrats have vehemently claimed that the Republican memo left out important details. And the Democrat version, their response, their rebuttal, if you will, on government surveillance abuses is a total political and legal bust 
that uh, just confirms all of the things um, that were done, the president says. But Trump was unimpressed with a 10-page memo, as, of course, he would be. Well, Mr. President, uh, it confirms the FBI acted appropriately, says its uh, supporters on the Democrat side, acted appropriately, and that Russian agents approached two of your advisors and informed your campaign that Russia was prepared to help you by disseminating stolen Clinton emails. Well, Republicans uh, had found that the Department of Justice and FBI left out Democratic National Committee and Hillary Clinton campaign funding of the dossier, as well as the anti-Trump motivations of authors and former British spy author, rather uh, rather singular, and British spy uh, Christopher Steele in its request for a warrant. Indeed, Republicans have pointed to this as proof that intelligence agencies abused surveillance powers. And I would encourage you to read the Democrat rebuttal and uh, decide for yourselves, because uh, depending depending on which side you're listening to, you're utterly convinced um, of the point they're making. Well, the Democratic rebuttal, though, um, it didn't directly challenge some of the key findings of the earlier uh, memo that the Republicans released. Uh, backed, uh, it did back the FBI and the Department of, of Justice in their pursuit of the FISA warrant to surveil uh, Carter Page. In fact, the Department of Justice and the FBI would have been remiss in their duties to protect the country if they... Um, had not sought a FISA warrant, they write, and repeated renewals to conduct temporary surveillance of Carter Page, someone the FBI assessed to be an agent of the Russian government, the rebuttal said, adding that the Department of Justice met the rigor, transparency, evidentiary basis needed to meet FISA's uh, probable cause requirement. Now, part of the problem is you and I uh, are not privy to the actual classified uh, details. One side says this is what it says and this is what was omitted. The other side said, no, that's not the case. This was, in fact, provided in full to the FISA court. Uh, we have to take the word of either the partisans on the right or the partisans on the left because we don't uh, we don't have the opportunity to see what FISA was actually given to make these decisions. So uh, the Democrat rebuttal or the GOP memo will either confirm what you've already decided is the case um, or uh, cause you to question you know, whether or not we know anything about it at all. Now, some of the things to know about the uh, Democrat um, document, unlike the Republican memo, it was largely authored by Representative uh, De- uh, Devin Nunez. The Democrats' rebuttal was released with many blacked out portions. Uh, most of the redactions appear to be related to intelligence regarding Russian activities, including contacts Uh, former uh, Trump advisor Carter Page had with Russian-linked individuals. One section with multiple redactions is titled Page's Connections to Russian Government and Intelligence Officials. Now, Page was the subject of of a surveillance warrant obtained by the FBI and Department of Justice as part of their probe, according to the GOP version. Now, one redaction appears to involve former Trump aide George Papadopoulos, and another appears to block out information related to compensation the FBI considered giving to dossier author and former British spy Christopher Steele. Even before the memo's release, Representative Adam Schiff, the top uh, Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee, said he was uh, wary of the redactions Trump would require for political purposes. Uh, of course, the FBI and the Department of Justice uh, handled the redactions uh, in this release. Uh, also, the rebuttals released on February 24th claims officials at the FBI and Department of Justice did not abuse the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act process, omit material information, or subvert this vital tool to spy on the Trump campaign. The GOP memo alleged, st- alleged rather that Steele's uh, controversial dossier, that 35-page document compiled for the firm Fusion GPS, formed 
an essential part of applications by the FBI and Department of Justice to spy on Page. The surveillance warrant uh, and renewals did not mention that the dossier was paid for, at least in part, by the Democratic National Committee and the campaign for Hillary Clinton, according to the GOP memo. But the Democratic memo contends that the Department of Justice uh, did disclose the assessed political motivation of those who hired him and that Steele was likely hired by someone looking for information that could be used to uh, discredit Trump's campaign. Uh, It doesn't say specifically the the DNC or the the Clinton campaign, but it does make a general reference. The Democrats say the FBI made only narrow use of Steele's sources in the request for the FISA application. Republicans have said uh, that is not enough, however, because the Clinton campaign and the DNC were not named. Uh, The demo memo uh, said the FBI did not disclose who the clients were, the Clinton campaign, the DNC. Uh, Trump tweeted shortly after uh, the Democratic uh, document was released. Another thing to um, to keep in mind, the Democrat memo seen as a rebuttal to the GOP document was deemed a politically driven document by the White House following its release. White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders said that the memo fails to even address the fact that the deputy FDI director told the committee uh, that had it not been for the dossier, no surveillance order would have been sought. Well, Representative Eric uh, Swalwell, a Democrat out of California, Uh, previously said that the Democrats' document bolsters the FBI's credibility in the Russia probe. He said the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court was given a voluminous amount of evidence to obtain the warrant to spy on Page. The memo contends that the FBI had an independent basis for investigating Page's motivations. It also says the Department of Justice repeatedly informed the court about Steele's background, credibility, and potential bias. Another point of agreement, the two memos weren't in complete opposition to each other. Both memos said that the Steele dossier was not the catalyst for the FBI opening its counterintelligence investigation into links between the Russia investigation and the Trump campaign. Both memos show that the investigation was prompted by concerns about contacts between Papadopoulos and individuals linked to Russia. And uh, one final uh, point was the representative uh, Uh, As I mentioned, Swalwell, a Democrat uh, memo, bolsters the credibility of the FBI. And additionally, the uh, memo uh, from the Democrats challenged the Republican claim that the FBI authorized payments to Steele, saying it neglected to include that the payment was canceled. However, the new memo said the dossier was corroborated by multiple sources, the opposite of what former FBI Director James Comey told the Senate Intelligence Committee in June of last year. He said then, three months after the uh, warrant had been uh, granted for Page, that the dossier was considered salacious and unverified when he briefed incoming President Trump in January of 2017. So some things to consider in the Democrat dossier. I would encourage you to read it and to decide for yourself. 46 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 49 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later in the next hour, we're going to talk with Ron Rhodes, his latest book, Israel on Alert, what we can expect next in the Middle East. The book is published by Harvest House. He will join us 
uh, for several segments, Ron, Dr. Ron Rose. Well, Senator Bernie Sanders has seemingly struggled to address recent allegations that Russian, uh, Russia's campaign to interfere with the 2016 presidential election included a plan to boost his Democratic primary campaign. For well over a year, it was alleged that Moscow's meddling mainly was meant to boost now President uh, Trump and harm then-Democrat rival Hillary Clinton. A bombshell February 16 indictment filed against 13 Russian nationals in Robert Mueller's Russia probe bolstered those allegations in stunning detail, but also said the Russians sought to help Sanders. Russian nationals, the indictment said, engaged in operations primarily intended to communicate derogatory information about Hillary Clinton, to denigrate other candidates such as Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio, and to support Bernie Sanders and then-candidate Donald Trump. The details create an awkward situation for the Vermont senator, who's now just simply brushed it off, as he is seen as uh, to be positioning himself for the potential 2020 White House run. Sanders, however, has yet to give a clear response on whether he or his campaign were aware of or took action to address the interference, like Russian bot social media accounts. Uh, allegedly, uh, allegedly supporting his campaign and said Sanders has tried to shift the uh, scrutiny toward Clinton's campaign for not doing more to prevent Russian meddling. The real question to be asked is what was the Clinton campaign doing about Russian interference? They had more information about this than we did, Sanders said in an interview last week and with Vermont Public Radio. They were supporting my campaign. No, they were attacking Hillary Clinton's campaign and using my supporters against her. One episode in the indictment involved Involved Russian nationals allegedly uh, circulating a February 2016 uh, internal outline of themes for future content to be posted to organization-controlled uh, social media accounts. Uh, specialists were instructed to post content that focused on politics in the United States and to use any opportunity to criticize Hillary and the rest, except Sanders and Trump. Um, we support them, the documents said. Now, primarily because everyone thought, including them, that Hillary Clinton was going to be the next president and they wanted to discredit her in order to undermine the political system in the United States. Sanders claimed in the radio interview and again on NBC's Meet the Press that a campaign aide shared information with the Clinton campaign about suspected anti-Clinton Russian trolls on a campaign Facebook page. A guy who was... um, on my staff, checked it out, and he went to the Clinton campaign. He said, you know what, I think these guys are Russians, Sanders says. His former campaign manager, Jeff Weaver, said the senator's comments were based on news reports, specifically one by NBC's San Diego affiliate that suggested a campaign volunteer brought the findings to the Clinton team. Politico, however, reported that the uh, staffer, Sanders, was referring to John Mattis from San Diego, who was just a volunteer and did not receive any direction from Sanders or campaign staff, but rather communicated on his own with the Clinton backing super PAC. The Clinton campaign itself denied receiving information from Sanders' campaign on the issues, telling Politico that no one from Sanders' campaign reached out. Weaver later told Politico that Sanders did not have any uh, firsthand knowledge uh, that that happened. A spokesman for Sanders didn't respond to questions about all of that. But nonetheless, the back and forth confirms the Russians were attempting to influence the outcome of the election. I thought this was rather comical in the midst of some very serious news. This was the Babylon Bee. The headline simply read, Russia announces new plan to just let the United States tear itself apart unaided. 
After years of meddling by Russian agents and Russian-funded bots and hacking attempts, the Kremlin announced Thursday it would be withdrawing from all activities in the United States and would instead be allowing the country to tear itself apart without any help from them. Our spies and bots simply couldn't keep up with the rapid pace at which America is destroying itself, Russian President Vladimir Putin said in a press conference Thursday. They're on the verge of tearing each other to shreds. Really, it's quite impressive. End quote. Of course, this is fictitious. Putin stated his spy stations abroad tried the, tried their hardest to divide America, but were outpaced and outclassed at every turn by the country's high-motivated uh, politicians, partisan activists, who are doing a far better job than his own spies could at ripping the country apart. Uh, they don't need our help, apparently, so we'll just get out of the way and let them have at it. Bravo, America, Putin added. And of course, this is a tongue-in-cheek But it's not that far from the truth. I think we might all agree. Well, bias and mass censorship from extraordinarily powerful tech companies create an enormous problem that Americans have to come to terms with, says a former Google employee who was fired for his politically incorrect views. And while tech companies in Silicon Valley and elsewhere are incentivized to create a safe and civil environment for their customers, problems emerge when they get to define what offensive is. That's a quote from James Damore. Uh, during a a breakout session at the Conservative Political Action Conference, or CPAC. Damore lost his job as an engineer in August over an internal memo he wrote questioning Google's gender diversity policies, which went public. He initially filed a complaint about his firing with the National Labor Relations Board, but withdrew it and filed a class action lawsuit against the company. Most of those who work in the tech industry have had little contact with conservative ideas and have lived in liberal bubbles uh, their entire lives, Damore says during the CPAC session Friday titled Suppression of Conservatism, uh, Conservative Views on Social Media. Unfortunately, this often means that people with another viewpoint can't be open about it, he said, because they will be ostracized. This culture naturally makes its way into how tech companies do business, Damore went on to say. And while many in the tech industry are well-meaning, he said, bias seeps into their algorithms. This presents a unique challenge for conservatives who have a reason to worry about bias, but are unlikely to look for government intervention to solve the problem. And although many are calling for government involvement to fix the situation, Damore says it is vital we protect the norms of free speech. Keeping the tech industry accountable will require a strict focus on transparency and accountability, he said. He praised the Daily Caller News Foundation for its reporting on the the bias of Google's fact-checking feature, which almost exclusively targeted conservative websites. Not only is Google fact-checking highly partisan, perhaps reflecting the sentiments of its leaders, it's also blatantly wrong, asserting sites made claims they demonstrably never made. The news organization reported in January when the fact check feature was first released. Google discontinued the feature shortly after accusations of bias against conservatives were the subject of such reports. Ultimately, Damore said transparency is essential and Americans should understand the practices of social media companies such as Facebook, Twitter, Google. CPAC, the largest annual national gathering of conservative activists, ran Thursday through Saturday at the Garland National Resort and Convention Center in National Harbor, Maryland, just outside of Washington. And there's a curse. Uh, Some are alleging National Review's Clay Rutledge points out that technological innovations have made Americans lonelier than ever before with serious consequences for both public health and our already polarized politics. In these politically polarized times, we're repeatedly reminded that humans are a tribal species, but our society, uh, our sociality goes much deeper than that, whether our ideas are... um, uh, 
idea of a good time is a quiet evening at home or a night on the town, all of us must form and maintain rich interpersonal connections to survive and thrive. From the basic attachment of an infant to his mother to the complex global economy, social relationships are key to human success. Not surprisingly, then, a significant amount of human activity is driven by the need to belong. Consider the personal risks we will take and ambitions we will deny to preserve meaningful social bonds or the extent to which we will throw caution to the wind for love, for the bond of brotherhood that inspires great courage under fire in the chaos of war. There is naturally a kicker since social connections and love are so central to the human experience. We're vulnerable to great social suffering. Anyone who has ever grieved the death of a loved one understands all too well just how much our connections to others means to us. In fact, it's not uncommon for people to continue talking to family members after they are gone and to even experience hallucinations of them. A study of widows found that the longer they are married, the more likely they are to have visions of their deceased spouse or feel his continued presence. We may not be the only species that murmur that mourns our death, but with the blessings of our greater consciousness comes the burden of greater social pain. Humans have a unique awareness of past and potential future social loss and harm. Even the fear of our own mortality has distinctly a social flavor. Research reveals that one major facet of death anxiety is the fear of being separated from loved ones. More and more researchers and healthcare professionals are viewing loneliness as a serious medical problem. It's associated with the elevated blood pressure, poor sleep, weakened immunity. Persistent loneliness has been linked to death caused by cancer, cardiovascular disease, and other chronic conditions. When researchers combine many large data sets to examine the link between various forms of social disconnection and mortality, they found that social isolation, loneliness, and living alone increase the likelihood of death between 26 and 32% over an average seven-year period. And loneliness often leads to more loneliness. People who feel disconnected from others will cautiously pursue opportunities to form or restore relationships. And given the technology and innovations that we enjoy together, we are more alone and lonely than ever before. Technological innovations have made Americans lonelier than ever, with serious consequences for both public health and our already polarized politics. We're at the top of the hour. News and traffic up next. When we return, we'll hear from Ron Rhodes, his latest book titled Israel on High Alert. What can we expect next in the Middle East? You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Liberty Coin and Currency. Well, the Middle East has long been spiraling out of control, and it's caused global uncertainty and, quite frankly, fear. What does this turmoil mean for Israel, and why has peace been so elusive? Well, in Israel on High Alert, author and Bible teacher Dr. Ron Rhodes offers a very clear view of the situation and future faced by Israel. The the book explores the history of the current Middle East conflict, what's about the ongoing battle and God's plan for Israel, and how the events in the Middle East affect us today. Touching on everything from mainstream and radical Islam to the current efforts to rebuild the Jewish temple. The book will guide you through the past, present, and God-ordained future for the nation of Israel. You'll find assurance that uh, knowing that even in the midst of chaos and uncertainty, God's plan is already in action and uh, that it will not be 
uh, thwarted. Israel on alert. What can we expect in the Middle East? Dr. Ron Rhodes is president of Reasoning from the Scriptures Ministries, which is heard regularly on nationwide radio, and is the author of The End Times in Chronological Order, The Eight Great Debates of Bible Prophecy, and 40 Days Through Revelation. He periodically teaches at Dallas Theological Seminary and several other seminaries as well, and we're delighted to have him with us today to talk about his latest book, Israel on Alert, What Can We Expect Next in the Middle East? Thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure to have you. Well, thank you. The pleasure is mine. There's a lot of attention being focused on what's happening in the Middle East, in Israel in particular, um, but not a lot of certainty about how to interpret uh, events. Can we have um, a, a clear understanding of events as we are watching them unfold on our televisions or on the Internet and see God's hand at work through events uh, unfolding today? Well, I think that we can. In fact, I think that maybe the place to begin is to recognize that God himself told us that toward the end times, Israel would become a sore spot in the entire world. And we see that in Zechariah 12, verse 1. And indeed, when you look at the situation of Israel today, it is a sore spot, particularly to the nations that surround Israel. In fact, that's what Zechariah 12, 1 says. It's it's the nations that surround Israel that will reel and stagger as a result of Israel. And when you think about it, Israel is only about 8,000 square miles, but she is surrounded by about 5 million square miles of hostile Arab real estate. And, uh, you know, they want that land back. Ever since Israel became a nation again back in 1948, the one driving motive behind all terrorist organizations and behind all Muslim activities against Israel is the fact that they feel the land has been stolen from them and they want it back. And you know, it's a religious thing. It's not a political thing. It's not a geopolitical thing. It is truly a religious issue. And I think that that's one of the things that maybe some of our government leaders don't appreciate Mm -hmm. as much as they should. Mm -hmm. Now, President Donald Trump last week announced that the new U.S. embassy in Jerusalem is going to open in May of 2018. And uh, the the goal is to coincide with the 70th anniversary of when uh, Ben-Gurion announced the establishment of the Jewish state. Uh, There's been a lot of uh, controversy around the announcement made earlier, uh, I guess it was last year, um, that uh, the United States would move its embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Explain why this is so significant and why the nations are railing against um, this decision. Well, you know, even previous to this decision, uh, Israel has been viewed by particularly radical Muslims as the lesser Satan. And you can guess who the greater Satan is. That's the United States. And, of course, the reason why the United States has been called the great Satan is because of the United States' assistance to Israel through many, many years. And so when the United States announced that the um, um, embassy would be moved to Jerusalem, that was kind of like pouring gasoline onto the fire, as it were, because, you know, Muslims continue to view Israel and the United States as the lesser Satan and the great Satan, and they view this move as a hideous move against the one true God, Allah. And so they resent it. And they're making that resentment uh, very verbal, very vitriolically verbal. And uh, I think that it's going to get worse before it gets better. Certainly, I think we got to do everything we can to build peace in the Middle East. But, you know, biblical prophecy is very clear that Israel will remain a sore spot in the end times because Israel will not surrender her land. 
Now, do you see anything in Scripture that relates to um, the U.S. Embassy fitting into biblical prophecy as as Jerusalem being acknowledged as the eternal capital of Israel? Is there anything in, in Scripture, not of the United States making this specific decision, but that fits into this notion that it's been a controversy and that some nations acknowledge, others uh, not? Well, I think that Scripture does address this. And, and really, the uh, the issue that lies behind that question is who does the land really belong to? Does it belong to Israel or does it belong to the Arabs and to the Muslims? And this is where it becomes a religious debate. Uh, As I'm sure you know, the Abrahamic covenant is a covenant in which God promised Abraham and his descendants a very specific land with very specific boundaries. And so the Jewish people believe that God gave that land specifically to them. And interestingly, that promise of land is repeated in almost every single Old Testament book. And so it's a very clear promise to the Jewish people. Now, Muslims will very often respond by saying that the original Old Testament did not say that. They will try to argue that the Jewish people actually changed the content of the Old Testament. And they argue that the original Old Testament had the line of promise going from Abraham to Ishmael to the Arab people. And so they believe that Allah promised that land to them. Now, because Jewish people believe that God uh, promised the land to them, and because Muslims believe that Allah promised the land to them, well, you can see why neither side is going to budge an inch. They believe that God is on their side. You know, both sides do. Now, of course, I believe that Israel is correct. The Abrahamic covenant is an unconditional covenant in which God made unconditional promises to Israel. And so I believe that's the correct understanding. But Muslims do continue to try to argue that the Old Testament originally had that land going to the Arab nations. Now, in May of uh, of 1948, I mentioned the 70th anniversary of the announcement and the establishment of the Jewish state and uh, of Israel. Um, Why do so many countries um, want to see Israel annihilated? Uh, Certainly the Arab neighbors, but others as well. And what biblical prophecies about Israel and the Jewish people have we already seen come to fruition, beginning of, uh, I suppose, uh, with the reestablishment of the nation of Israel? Well, that is such an interesting thing when you think about it, because even in the early 1940s, you had many Bible expositors teaching that one day, uh, Israel will be back in the land again. And what's interesting to observe is is that back in those early 1940s, uh, there were many people mocking those Bible expositors for even imagining such an idea. And then in 1948, it happened. It came to fruition. And what's very interesting is is what God actually outlines in Ezekiel 36 and 37 You see, God indicates that the first thing that's going to happen in the end times is that Israel would be born again as a nation. And then the scripture goes on to prophesy that Jewish people from every land and from every country in the world will stream back to the Holy Land. Now, that's never happened before in human history. Never before have Jewish people left all the nations of the world to go back to the Holy Land. But in fact, that is what we have seen happening ever since 1948. And do you want to know the, the main reason why so many Jews are returning to the Holy Land? It is anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. You see, they're experiencing persecution and anti-Semitism in just about every country. And that's kind of like the what you might call the hook in the jaw 
that God is using to draw his people all you know back to the Holy Land. And so again, first God says that Israel will be born again as a nation, and then God said that uh, all the pe- all the Jewish people would start to stream back to Israel from all the countries of the world. And then it goes on to say that sometime after that, there would be a number of nations, which we now know to be Iran and Sudan and Libya and Turkey and a number of other Muslim nations joining with Russia that will actually launch an invasion into the Holy Land. Now, that's not happened yet. But isn't it interesting to observe that these various nations today have alliances with each other, and they also have a motive for invasion. They hate Israel, and they want to wipe Israel off the map because Israel stole the land from them, and that land belongs to the Muslims, they believe. Now, we're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking about the book, Israel on Alert. What can we expect next in the Middle East? Ron Rhodes is my guest. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and we are continuing a fascinating conversation with Dr. Ron Rhodes. He is the author of many books, his most recent, Israel on Alert, What Can We Expect Next in the Middle East? And uh, just before the break, we were talking about the fact that uh, the support of Israel is diminishing. You have a chapter titled The Diminishing Support uh, for Israel. It goes beyond just the Arabs, um, Iran and and Russia. Uh, But why are we seeing diminishing uh, support for the nation uh, at the UN, for example, there's one thing that anti-Semitism is re-emerging, and, and uh, is, uh, Jews are going back to the land of Israel. But why are we seeing uh, the kind of uh, diminishment of political and other support? Well, of course, a large number of the people who are voting against Israel these days in the United Nations are those sympathetic with the Arabs and the Muslims. But when you look at the numbers, it does seem rather alarming because Israel has been condemned 62 times. And you have to compare that with nations like Syria, which has been condemned 17 times, North Korea eight times, and Iran only five times. And yet Israel 62 times. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that Israel is back in the land again, and that coming back into the land, actually caused a displacement among some Palestinians. And Israel has sought to do, uh, you know, what they can in relocating them and so forth. But uh, this idea of coming up with a uh, parallel state or a second state or a two-state solution has been one that's not agreeable to Israel, because Israel believes that that would give these Palestinian nations or the Arab nations a satellite, uh, basically a satellite army base, through which to attack Israel. And so this is really kind of a big mess today. And, uh, you know, we've had U.S. presidents trying to, to solve all of this and uh, try to bring about Middle East peace. But this is one of those things where it's just not political. Like I said earlier, yeah. it's also a religious issue. And for that reason, neither side is budging. Now, what are the, you write about two um, regatherings in Israel on alert, uh, regatherings of the Jews in the end times prophecy, and why understanding this distinction is so key. Talk about the two regatherings, what we should know, and why it's important for us to know it. Well, that's a very, very good question, because if you get confused over those regatherings, then you're going to misinterpret some of the scriptures. And the first regathering is one that we're seeing in our own day today. In fact, it started back in 1948 when Israel became a nation again. Jewish people started to stream back to the Holy Land. 
Now, simply because they're streaming back to the Holy Land does not mean that they believe in Jesus yet, because they don't. These are Jewish people who have not trusted in Jesus as the divine Messiah. And so this is what we might call a gathering in unbelief. And that's going to continue right up until the time uh, that uh, the tribulation begins. And that's a seven-year period that precedes the second coming of Christ. And during that seven-year period, there will be many judgments that uh, fall out on humanity. Now, the second gathering is really glorious when you think about it. It all goes back to um, what Paul said in Romans 9 to 11, because God, you know, Paul said that God is not through with Israel yet. God still has a plan for Israel. And that, in fact, at the very end of the tribulation period, the forces of the Antichrist will be moving against the remnant of Israel, and suddenly the Jewish leaders lead the Israelites and the Jewish people to recognize that indeed they've been wrong. Jesus is the divine Messiah. And they call out to him, and they experience national conversion. And when they call out to him, what happens? Christ comes again and destroys the forces of Antichrist. You know, a lot of people don't really think of the second coming of Christ as a rescue mission, but in at least one way it is. The second coming is more than that, you know, but in, in at least one way it's a rescue mission to rescue that remnant of Jews. Now that remnant of Jews will be gathered in belief, not unbelief, but they'll be gathered in belief and enter into Christ's kingdom, his thousand-year kingdom. And so again, there's two different gatherings with different purposes, but it's all part of God's unfolding plan for the nation of Israel. Now, this question may seem obvious to most of our listeners, but I think it's worth asking, why should uh, followers of Jesus today, why should the Christian community be interested in and concerned about the direction of Israel? Well, I think for several reasons. First of all, over 25% of the Bible is prophecy, and that includes both the Old and the New Testament. And so you don't want to ignore that much of the Bible. But secondly, at the very heart of biblical prophecy is the nation of Israel. And I say that because God has made unconditional promises to Israel, and God is a promise keeper. He does not go back on his promises. Now, have you ever thought about what would happen if God did break his promises? Mm. What if God broke his promises to Israel? Well, could God break his promises to you and me, too, about salvation? I mean, that's just a terrible thing to even ponder. But the truth is, is that God never breaks his promises. And so, since there are so many prophetic promises made to Israel in the unfolding of Bible prophecy, you and I, as Christians, ought to be concerned about it. And I think that we ought to be concerned about the direction of Jerusalem. And I think that we ought to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. You know, after all, that's what the Bible tells us to do, right? Pray Absolutely. for the peace of Jerusalem. And so since this is a big part of Bible prophecy, I don't think it's something that's an option for the Christian. I think that we're all called to be concerned about not just Israel, but real, really all of Bible prophecy. Uh, you write in Israel on a, on a high alert, you write about three main ideologies that in the Middle East that directly relate to the current conflict over uh, Israel. Um, explain to our listeners, as you do to your readers, what these ideologies are. Well, these ideologies uh, form a powder keg, if I might put it that way. You know, one alone, it's not going to cause an explosion. But when you mix these three ideologies together in the world, it's just an explosion waiting to happen. The first one is Zionism, and that's, that's another name for a type of Jewish nationalism that has the goal of reestablishing the Jewish ancestral homeland. 
And so when Israel was born again in 1948, I mean, that just gave a, a huge boost and celebration to Zionists all over the world. Now, in contrast to that is what's called Arab nationalism. Arab nationalism is a movement that seeks to unify Arabs as one people by appealing to a sense of their common history and their culture and their language. And you see, what they want to do is to maintain Arab power in the Arab lands of the Middle East. Uh, In other words, they don't want the United States messing around in Arab lands. They want hands-off in terms of the United States. And as well, they view Israel as a cancerous tumor that must be removed. And so there are Arab nationalists all over the Middle East who want to see Israel destroyed. Now also mix into this what's called Islamic fundamentalism, and this is the Islamic extremists. Islamic fundamentalism is a religious philosophy that seeks to establish Islamic dominance in the Middle East and eventually the rest of the world, including our country. They want a worldwide caliphate. And so Israel, as a symbol of Jewish power, is viewed as an insult to Allah and cannot be allowed to continue to exist. It must be pushed into the sea and destroyed. So here's the thing. When you mix Zionism and Arab nationalism and Islamic fundamentalism together and you mix it in one big bowl, well, you're going to experience an explosion pretty soon. And so the way that I view it is that these three ideologies are kind of like a powder keg just waiting to happen, waiting to explode in the Middle East. And I think it's just a matter of time. Um, We've been observing um, Iran's uh, work in Syria with Hezbollah, establishing what could very well be a foothold along Israel's uh, border there. What are your thoughts on what's happening in Syria, the likelihood that uh, Iran could, in fact, Um, establish uh, more of a foothold there, uh, given the situation with Russia, Syria, and all the other nations that are railing in that uh, country, including the United States, uh, attempting to uh, defend its people? Well, for one thing, Iran is seeking to become really the major player in the Middle East. It's got its eyes on everything in that part of the world. And as you know, Iran has been working in very close association with Russia these days, And uh, just to illustrate that, uh, Iran has signed a deal with Russia, and it's a 25-year deal where Iran is giving half a billion dollars a year to Russia so that Iran can beef up its military. Also, for the first time in history, Iran is now allowing another country, more specifically Russia, to use one of its airfields uh, in order to launch attacks against Syria. And so there, there you have Iran and Russia working in concert with each other in order to attain dominance in Syria. Now, when you think about it, it does make good sense because Syria is right there on the border of Israel. When you look at a map of that part of the world, you've got Israel, and then at the, uh, the upper eastern portion of Israel, that's where it kind of touches Syria. And since Scripture does portray an uh, invasion in the end times of the Muslim nations and Russia into Israel— it seems like Syria would be a logical place through which to launch such an attack. And, of course, there's going to be air support and sea support as well, you know, among the Russians. But nevertheless, in terms of the land battle itself, it seems like um, having dominance in Syria would be a necessary precondition for this uh, massive invasion to take place. But I do want to tell you something really, really uh, important, and that is this. Despite the size of that invading force, 
they're not going to win. They're not going to win because God says he will protect his people. Israel, the God of Israel, never sleeps or slumbers. No weapon formed against Israel will, will prosper. Those are more promises given to Israel And so God promises to protect Israel from this invading force. We're talking with Dr. Ron Rhodes. His book is titled Israel on Alert. What what can we expect next in the Middle East? We're going to continue in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about a fascinating new book titled Israel on Alert. What can we expect next in the Middle East? Portions of today's program are brought to you by Liberty Coin and Currency. Uh, let's talk about um, Russia and the role that it plays in the end times. Now, many would observe that Russia, we can find references that uh, seem to relate to Russia, but nothing that would uh, point to the United States. What can you tell us about its role in the end times? prophecy? Well, Scripture does, I think, refer to Russia by the term Rosh, and it's important to understand that we think that Rosh means Russia, not because they sound alike. If that was the only reason we had, that would not be a good reason. Mm -mm. But what we do have is inscriptions in various caves throughout history that point to a people called Rosh, or sometimes Rash, or Ross, or Ras. And in each case, these people are said to live directly north of Israel in the part of the land presently occupied by Russia. And furthermore, Rosh is said to be to the uttermost north of Israel. And if you get on a map and you you draw a line straight north from Israel, you'll go straight through Moscow. And so there's good reasons to believe that Rosh is, in fact, going to be joining with the uh, Muslims in this attack against, uh, against Israel. Now, what's very interesting is that there's already precedent for this taking place. Uh, after all, Muslim nations have been attacking you know, Israel throughout the years, back in the 1960s and the 1970s. And in each of those attacks, even though it was the Muslims who were attacking, guess who provided the weaponry and the intelligence and the military support? It was the Russians. And so the precedent has already been set. And when this next invasion takes place, Certainly, we don't want to set dates or anything like that. But whenever it does take place, uh, we'll know that they're, um, you know, engaging in an action where they've actually had some practice before. You know, they've done it before and they're going to do it again. But this next invasion is going to be an all-out invasion involving multiple Muslim nations in cooperation with Russia. You know what's really kind of sad to think about? And that is that when this invasion takes place, not a single nation is going to stand with Israel. That's what Ezekiel 36 indicates. Not a single nation will stand with Israel. And so you have to wonder, what happened to the United States? Mm -hmm. Why didn't the United States help Israel? And in answer to that, there's a lot of people that believe that the balance of power in the end times is going to shift from the United States to a revived Roman Empire over in Europe where the Antichrist comes into power. And that it's possible that the United States might be subsumed under the globalism established by the Antichrist. And uh, one thing we know for sure, at the very end of the tribulation period, when the nations attack Israel under the Antichrist, the text of Scripture tells us that all the kings of the earth and all the nations of the earth are part of that invading force against Israel. Now, you have to wonder, does that include the United States? It does say all the nations and all the kings of the earth will move against Israel. 
And so the, the one thing that I can think of that might help explain that is the rapture of the church, because when the church is raptured off the earth, there goes all the Israel-supporting Christians. You know, once the Christians are gone, anti-Semitism, I believe, is going to really kick into high gear. Hmm. Now, this brings up the subject of Armageddon and what will happen during this military campaign. I've stood there and looked over that valley and wondered how the unfolding of events that we read about in Scripture uh, might, uh, might take place. What can we learn from Scripture about Armageddon and what will, in fact, be a part of that military campaign? Well, um, Armageddon literally means Mount of Megiddo and refers to a location about 60 Mm -hmm. miles north of Jerusalem. And that's going to be where this series of horrific battles uh, that take place right prior to the second coming of Christ will take place. And there's a number of different uh, aspects of Armageddon. You know, first of all, the Antichrist gathers all of his forces. Babylon will be destroyed, and that's going to make all the nations weep, because apparently Babylon is not just a literal place, but it also represents the financial and economic center of commerce during the tribulation. And so there's going to be a a major crash of economics when Babylon is destroyed. Jerusalem will also be attacked by the forces of the Antichrist and fall. Now, luckily, the Jewish people, the Jewish remnant, have already escaped Jerusalem, and they're hiding out probably in Petra or perhaps Basra. And so Jerusalem will fall. But then the Antichrist turns his armies right toward this Jewish remnant to wipe out the Jewish people once and for all. But you know, it's like what I said before. It's at that point that Israel experiences national regeneration and calls out to the living Christ, the divine Messiah, and Christ comes again and overcomes the, uh, the invading forces of uh, the Antichrist at Armageddon. And here's something to think about. I'll leave this with you. The fact is, is that the scriptures teach that Jesus cannot come again at the second coming until the Jews call out for him. It may be the warped thinking of Satan and the Antichrist that if they can wipe out the Jewish people, they can stop the Jews from crying out for the Lord to come for them, thereby preventing the second coming. Now, of course, he's not going to succeed. Jesus Christ is God, and he cannot be thwarted like that. But uh, it is worth noting that that's a real possibility in terms of how things might unfold. Just one other thing I want to ask you before our time is up. How is the stage being set in Israel for the rebuilding of the Jewish temple, which is a very explosive issue? Well, it is an explosive issue primarily as related to building the temple on the uh, the Temple Mount, because that's where the, uh, the Muslim uh, structure is presently. And uh, right now, there are preparations for the building of the temple that are truly amazing. And you have to keep in mind that the Jewish temple doesn't even have to be rebuilt until the very middle of the future tribulation period. So any preparations that we see see taking place today is something that indicates, I think, that uh, the signs of the times are coming to pass. Now, very quickly, what am I talking about? Well, first of all, the uh, the Temple Institute is prefabricating the Jewish robes and various priestly instruments that will be used in the temple. It's all being pre-manufactured, ready to go. The Sanhedrin has been reestablished, and that's important because it's the Sanhedrin who chooses the high priest. The Sanhedrin has recently called for architectural plans for the rebuilding of the temple. The Sanhedrin is also raising money for the rebuilding of the temple. And meanwhile, Jewish people by the hundreds are praying at the wall every single day, asking for God to help them to establish their temple on the Temple Mount. 
it's likely, in, in my opinion, it's likely that when the Ezekiel invasion against Israel takes place and God destroys the Muslim invaders, that that will open the door for Israel to build its temple on the Jewish uh, you know, temple mount, where the uh, Muslim uh, uh, temple is at present, you know, the Muslim mosque. Yes. And so I think that that's probably going to be what opens the door for that to happen, because no longer will there be strong Muslim resistance at that point. Well, it's a fascinating uh, book. It tells us what the future holds for Israel. We're talking about the book Israel on High Alert. What can we expect next in the Middle East? Uh, Dr. Ron Rhodes, um, the author. Are you um, uh, are you speculating on any kind of a timeline? I mean, obviously, we don't know the day nor the hour, but do you have a sense of um, whether or not we're we're anticipating an accelerated timeline or this is off into the distant future? Well, I believe that we are living in the end times, and I believe it's very possible that this Ezekiel invasion could take place before the tribulation period. And if that happens, it opens the door for a lot of other stuff. Just think about it for a minute. If this Muslim force tries to invade Israel and God destroys the Muslim invaders, that means that it's much easier for the Antichrist to sign a covenant protecting Israel, since the Muslim threat is now gone. It also makes it much easier for the Antichrist to rise to world dominion. After all, the Muslims won't be there to establish a worldwide caliphate anymore. Also, it makes it easier for the false religion of the end times to uh, come into being because the fact is, is that the two groups that would resist that false religion are gone. Christians have been raptured. The Muslim forces have now been decimated. And so to me, it all fits together like pieces of a puzzle. So the next thing that I'm looking to, to happen is eventually this Ezekiel invasion. Well, again, if uh, people, if our listeners want to have a better understanding of what's uh, what's likely to happen next, Israel on High Alert is the name of the book. What can we expect next in the Middle East, published by Harvest House. Dr. Rhodes, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Appreciate it very much. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a break here in a moment and uh, wrap things up. But the uh, the book really is fascinating in that it goes into more detail about these and other issues. We didn't even have a chance to uh, to go into the prophetic, the Jewish prophetic witnesses who have the same powers as Moses and Elijah. Who are these two? Uh, what the millennial kingdom um, uh, is and how it relates to Israel. What is the new Jerusalem? Is it a literal place or uh, something else. Anyway, the book is uh, is a great uh, read to help put things into perspective. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. A couple of things I wanted to uh, bring your to your attention, rather. Oregon lawmakers have sent a proposal to the governor's office, the governor's desk, that would allow the state's largest city, which would be Portland, to coordinate with the Department of Transportation to remove homeless encampments. So this is something that's been debated in this short legislative session. It's now passed out of both chambers and is sitting on the governor's uh, desk. Under the measure, Portland and the State Department of Transportation would be allowed to join forces in removing homeless encampments. Dan and I were at a medical appointment earlier today, and one of these encampments was huge and had all kinds of stuff. It's not just a matter of pitching a tent. It had all kinds of stuff that I'm not sure how they moved it there and moving it out would be a major undertaking. But this is designed to make all of this more transparent and more efficient. Proponents said that removing the encampments is complicated when they spread across city and state land, which is uh, um, often adjacent, uh, like across overpasses, pedestrian trails. This one was near an overpass. Advocates for the homeless, uh, they're pretty skeptical that this um, broad language in the bill could be used 
used to simply speed the removals by allowing the city and agencies to present a united front. Well, after the House approved that bill last week, the Senate approved it unanimously uh, today, sending it to the governor for her signature. And my um, understanding is she is expected to sign it. Well, looking back to the debate behind all of this, they argued in Salem that this would allow the city of Portland and other cities, for that matter, with more than 500,000 people to clear homeless campers belongings from land owned by the Oregon Department of Transportation and do uh, do so following the city's 48 hour timeline. Now, we're talking about specific land. So this is somewhat limited. In other words, it would happen much faster. Currently, per a 2011 court order, the Oregon Department of Transportation has to give campers 10 to 19 days notice before uh, moving a camp can uh, take place. Well, the bill would allow for a simpler, more transparent process when it comes to clearing the camps, Uh, says um, the city of Portland. Um, through its one point of contact system, the city notifies the community weekly of every encampment that is scheduled to be posted and that is cleaned up. Now, this would allow the public to have a clear understanding of where and when cleanup activities are occurring, uh, providing for more a, a level of transparency that can build trust, head off unnecessary misunderstandings and conflict. At least that's the quote. That's the hope behind this uh uh, new law that they're uh, waiting for the governor to sign off on. Well, the bill requires city officials to notify social service providers of any planned sweep, so they're also present to help uh, those who are uh, going to be displaced. According to city staff, they say the goal would be to have a worker from those agencies accompany the crews who are there for cleanup to offer the campers access to programs that could help them uh, in moving or whatever needs they might have. The city would also be required to store any belongings collected uh, on ODOT land for 30 days, presumably so that it could be uh, uh, restored to the owners. Uh, I don't know what happens after 30 days with that, um, with the stuff that's collected, but this is a, a plan that is very likely to be signed off by the governor. Uh, as I mentioned, it uh, just made it onto her desk in the legislature today. Also, we learned that that bill that has to do with the uh, the broadening of authority given to those who are making final decisions for those who are incapacitated but capable of um, receiving nutrition and hydration was passed out of the Senate. We're trying to uh, continue to follow the progress on that, but you can go to OregonRightToLife.com for more information if you would like to uh, follow that bill and if you haven't already communicated uh, with lawmakers there. Finally, I wanted to remind you that this weekend is Ignite. Some of us have been waiting for this for weeks and weeks, months and months, and it's finally this weekend. Now, the discount that was uh, offered right up until Sunday night is no longer available, but you can register online uh, at full price. You can also register at the door, and I would encourage you to go to West Western Seminary or Google Ignite, um, which is the name of the conference sponsored by Western Seminary. And you can find all the important details there. You can also purchase lunch if you choose to stay and have uh, lunch with us. You can choose which of the workshops you want to attend. But it really is a, a an event that's bathed in prayer. It's going to involve a lot of women in our community. And the, the focus is the fact that there is hope. And as you'll see online, we're covering the subject of hope from a biblical perspective in a variety of areas that touch on the lives of women in our culture today. So check that out. And again, it's, uh, it's not too late to register. It's not too late to come. In fact, if on Friday night or early Sunday morning you decide, you know, I need to be at Ignite, you can register there uh, as well. So make note of that. 
Taking a look at the program tomorrow, we're going to talk with Scott Husing. It's actually Major Scott Husing, I've learned. Uh, he is the author of Echo in Ramadi, the firsthand story of U.S. Marines in Iraq's deadliest city. And uh, while we've been following the events that unfolded in that area for months, uh, this is going to be a firsthand account of uh, the U.S. Marines' role in uh, in all of that. It has since been liberated, uh, but liberated is uh, to be understood in a very narrow sense in that um, life has not been restored uh, to what was normal and uh, natural for the people who live there. Much of the city has been destroyed. Anyway, we're going to talk with Major Scott Husing about the book he authored, Echo in Ramadi, the first-hand story of U.S. Marines in Iraq's deadliest city. And then on uh, Thursday, I'm looking forward to a conversation with Deborah Tilden. She is the founder of SMART, and this is a ministry uh, to women that provides them information that relates to what actually happens to them and their unborn child in the process of abortion. It is um, it really turns on the notion of informed consent. And this has always uh, been something that we have championed in the United States until it's been applied to the practice of abortion. Uh, she's going to talk with us about this ministry and the information that they are providing to help equip women with uh, a clear understanding of the uh, the damage that this uh, procedure not only has on unborn children, but on them. She'll be joining us on Thursday. I've mentioned Stand Up Girl, which is one of the most effective pro-life ministries in the world. And uh, we've had them on before. We'll have them on again to explain how this online ministry works. But they have a special event coming up. It's a benefit concert if you'd like to support them in their work. And they're inviting you to join them for the Music to the Heart featuring magical pianist Michael Allen Harrison. That's coming up on Friday, March the 9th, 7 p.m. in Canby at the chapel there on the 3rd Avenue, benefiting Stand Up Girl Foundation, standupgirl.com. Uh, foundation. You can purchase the tickets online at standupgirlfoundation.org for the concert, um, or you can phone them at their uh, office at 503-304-1531, and that's coming up uh, on March the 9th. Also, KPDQ is uh, featuring a clean comedy night with Johnny W. We'd like to invite you to join 93.9 KPDQ for a night of clean comedy with Johnny W. with his own mix of musical chops, offbeat stand-up. He's going to bring a hilarious comedy experience for your whole family. It's happening on Saturday, March the 10th at East Hill Church in Gresham. You can find out more and purchase your tickets at kpdq.com or through the KPDQ mobile App. It's uh, it's kind of fun that we have some comedians coming through the area that you can bring the whole family to, and sometimes we just need to laugh. And uh, I've been uh, watching a little bit of Johnny W. online. He's a gifted musician as well as a comedian, and you can uh, get a bit of a preview if you're interested in finding out more before you buy your, your tickets. But again, that's coming up on the 10th of March, and you can uh, go to kpdq.com for more information. Finally, a Christian education for your child is possible. KPDQ listeners can save up to 40% on Christian school tuition. The schools currently on our um, discount list include Cornerstone Christian Academy, Valor Christian School, North Clackamas Christian School, Pilgrim Lutheran Christian School, Holy Cross Catholic School, Guard, Guardy Christian School, and Grace Lutheran. Uh, we'll be adding new schools and new tuitions all through the month of um, February and a little bit into uh, into March. So stay tuned to get your discount uh, visit listenersavings.com, listenersavings.com. So I think that pretty much covers the announcements for the day. 
Um, for those of you who didn't have an opportunity to hear the full interview with Ron Rhodes, you can go to kpdq.com and look for the podcast. You can hear it from start to finish. Um, a, a insightful look at uh, events unfolding in Israel as they relate to Scripture. So check that out. I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blind for producing, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.